The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Welcome, everyone, to the Games Clubhouse. Um, and just as a, as a brief reminder, we talk every Wednesday on trending news and industry uh, events and about games. Uh, this is Jonathan live from A16Z, and I'm here with my fellow co-hosts. I've got Andrew Chan, also of A16Z, South Pacific of Proletariat, Kelly Wallach of the Indie Megabooth and the One Up Fund, and Andrew Green of Still Fund. And um, this week we have a, um, a phenomenal guest that I'm very excited about, Ben Vetter. He's currently president of International Partnerships at Tencent America and was formerly CEO of Take-Two. Um, and for a quick refresher, if it is um, not, not in the games industry, uh, Take-Two is, uh, is a major games publisher that has published some of the most popular games of our time, including titles like Grand Theft Auto, Red Dead Redemption, Civilization, NBA 2K, Bioshock, and I'm sure many others that I'm, I'm forgetting. Uh, but Ben is a uh, veteran company builder and investor, um, and I've, I've worked with him for quite a while when I was at Tencent. And so I'm super excited for everyone to learn from his experiences today. Um, so thank you, Ben, for joining us. Thank you, John. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm really honored that you uh, you asked me to join and to talk to your talk to your clubhouse. I think it's um it's my first clubhouse meeting. I'm really excited about it, and I'm um, <laughs> hey, welcome. Um, and I'm thrilled to be here. Excited to have you. Awesome. So let's let's jump right into it. Um, ben, just tell us a bit about your time at Take Two. Like, how did you get involved with the company? Like, what's the story around that, et cetera? Uh, well, th- there is a story around it. It's kind of an amusing story from the business point of view. Um, uh, and people ask me a lot. The other version of the story is, how did you get into the video game business? And which is by way of saying, how do I get into the video game business? In the voice of the person who's asking the question. <clears throat> And my answer about how I got into the video game business was I had to crowbar my way into it. Um, and we did that because um, I and my partners had a media fund. We had kind of a, uh, an idea of building a media company through M&A, um, a diversified media company through M&A. And we were looking at a bunch of uh, different companies that we thought we could, we'd have an interest in. Um, and then... We discovered kind of a, a really troubled company at the time was super troubled called Take Two Interactive, um, and we did a lot of sleuthing, including a lot of um, research into corporate governance and um, the company's charter and all of that. Um, and we we're able to do something that I'm told has never been done before in corporate American history, which is we showed up at the annual shareholder meeting literally with the votes in the room. And when the chairman of the meeting sort of said, here are the nominees, this is a public company, here are the company's nominees for the board, are there any other nominees? And the lead shareholder at the time, which was Oppenheimer, sort of got up and said, yes, I'd like to nominate Ben and Strauss and a whole slate of um, directors. And um, they counted the votes, and you know, by 5 o'clock, the general counsel of the company said, congratulations, here are the keys, see you in the office tomorrow. Um, and at the time, Take-Two was a deeply troubled company. Um, it had um, backdating options issues that had uh, investigation by the FTC, the SEC, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. It was a deeply, deeply troubled company. Um, and I was the cleanup crew, and I went in as the CEO, initially, temporarily, ultimately, permanently. 
Um, and we, you know, we, we had a plan for how to turn this company around. And I'd done a turnaround before in the music business. And this looked kind of like it had similar markings. It turns out it was different. Um, every situation is different. Um, but we went in and started to, um, you know, affect change. And mostly by kind of um, establishing a certain amount of discipline, just kind of corporate discipline and straightforwardness and open and honesty and a certain operating philosophy. And it's a turnaround that wasn't easy by any means, but I'm really proud of it. I think, you know, the results today are... It's amazing. When we took it over, it was less than a billion dollar in market cap. Today, it's about $25 billion in market cap. And it's been, a, it's been an incredible success story. And, you know, ever since I um, got into that business, I fell in love with the games business. I think it's the most exciting part of the media landscape at the moment. And I think that it's becoming the mainstream form of entertainment for a brand new, um, you know, brand new generation of uh of people growing up initially, kind of younger people growing up with different kinds of media, but now during COVID, really expanding a demographic to something that, you know, games used to be a very niche or niche business. Today, it's absolutely mainstream. And it's kind of, it's a very exciting, it's, it's the most exciting part of the media landscape as far as I'm concerned. I'm, I'm curious a little bit, Ben, like that. So, I mean, the, the sort of takeover part seems like it's just like out of a movie or something, but like you said, you were, you were a media fund before that, but this was the first kind of move into games. Right. And like, right. was there, was there something specific about the timing? Like what, what precipitated that? Um, I think it was much more opportunistic, frankly, than it was. I mean, I mean, we were kind of interested in the video game business writ large and I've been, I've been interested in the video game business personally for a long time. I used to be an executive at News Corps and we kind of had, you know, one or two forays into the video game business that I was involved with as well. For, for all the old timers, you might remember a flight simulator called Kesmai. Um, and so I've been involved with it for a long time and it's been super interesting. The issue that a lot of people have had, and I think is kind of interesting from the business perspective, is that the video game business used to be this hard thing to understand. It used to be this kind of intersection of, you know, the, 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 the entertainment business, the toy business, and the computer, and the computer business. And, um, and it, was, it was very uh, packaged goods oriented. It was very seasonal. It was very Christmas oriented. And you'd have these titles and you'd ship them, um, you know, basically kind of once a year around Christmas time because it was very kind of gift oriented. And, um, and that was the nature of business and it wasn't very great business. And then you kind of take that and you put a, you know, a Nintendo cartridge in the middle of all that, for example, and you realize you had, and back then the, you know, the deal was the, the, the economic terms were that you had to pay upfront for the cartridges that you made as a publisher that you made, not the ones that are sold. And you, so you paid a royalty upfront and, um, uh, and, and you were on the hook for it as the publisher. And the reason the media companies have been so shy of it for so long is, so I'm old enough to remember when the movie companies had this idea, it's like, wait, they're both hit-based businesses, and if we can kind of create a video game off of a movie and market it at the same time, we'll save all the marketing costs, we'll kind of amortize the marketing costs over two different media properties, and um, you know, we can't lose, basically. And so there is this lore in the movie business where Universal launched the E.T. video game at the same time they launched the E.T. movie. And the E.T. movie <laughs> was massive. And for those that, those that will remember this, you know, the E.T. video game sucked. 
And it turns out that gamers like gameplay. They don't play the game because they like the movie. They play the game because they like the game, as we all know on this call. Universal was stuck with so much inventory, it, it almost took down the entire company. They literally had to take these cartridges and, and bury them into the ground. And, um, and that was the lesson for Hollywood for many, many years. And people stayed away from it. Literally bury them into the ground. Yeah. Well, that's what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually played that game and liked it a lot as a kid. And I, my uncle was like, could beat it for me. And it wasn't until like last year or later that I realized that nobody else liked and or played that game. Well, yeah, I mean, some gamers would play anything, right? But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was like um, six. <laughs> I, had a, I had a quick, quick question, Ben. Um, so you know how like Take Two started as you know jack of all games on the kind of distribution side, and then moved into publishing, and then got the developers, um, and then it's more been like developer centric ever since. Yeah. Um, do you see that like um, how, you know that it, it feels like publishers are coming back though? for like the smaller devs and indie devs, but they're breaking out. Like, do you feel like that business in, in a way with digital distribution is kind of like coming back? You mean the jack of all games thing? Distribution? Like, like, like just hard. yeah, like, like, like distribution and publishing as a, as a, as a real competency versus just like game development uh, with large I mean, central or, or, or the developers owning the marketing and, and publishing them working more with intermediaries. I think, you know, for those of you who don't know, Jack of All Games is like a physical distribution, like an old distribution company that would kind of get the get the cartridges and the CDs to the retail stores. And um, oftentimes that's kind of a fixed overhead thing in the public. And people are often, once, they, once they've once they established that infrastructure and a sales force and all that, they establish that infrastructure. They look for third-party games to distribute it because, you know, the marginal cost of taking a third-party game is nil and you have all this fixed cost you run it over. And the temptation is great to fill in all that extra capacity, but where people often go wrong is that they think that's their core business as opposed to kind of filling extra capacity. And the moment they turn that into their core business is the moment they, they turn left and make the wrong turn. I think, but it's, so that's kind of take two had kind of jack of all games and we ended up selling when, we, when I took over, mostly because it's a high volume, low margin business. Um, but the interesting thing that I find in digital distribution and network games, is what does it mean to be the publisher? For a long time, every developer wanted to be the publisher. Everybody wanted the publishers because they thought that's where the economics lay. And so it's interesting to break down, I think, what publishing really means. And in the old world, I'd say publishing was a combination of financing, right? You kind of go to the creatives to create something that required an advance and a royalty. It was um, marketing and promotion, right? Kind of needed a marketing budget to get out to the market. It was physical distribution, which is what Jack of All Games did. And then this ephemeral thing that people called editorial value add, right? Which is where the publisher sits between the consumer and the developer and provides information about and direction to the developer what they think the market actually wants. And, you know, sometimes the developer listens and sometimes doesn't. And that's where the tensions usually lie. In the digital world, like, what does that mean, right? The... Digital distribution, the physical distribution doesn't exist anymore. One would argue that whoever you're playing, paying a 30% platform fee is that distributor, right? Whether it's the Apple App Store or, say, um, Sony or Microsoft or Nintendo. So that's kind of, you could argue that that's the physical distribution. The marketing is still the marketing. The capital to the developer is has been freed from the publisher, right? There's lots of sources of capital. 
um, including especially kind of venture capital to fund these things. And lately, venture capital for a long time has thought video games was uninvestable, but changes in the changes in the industry have made it all of a sudden investable. And so what you're left with is kind of editorial value add. And what does that mean in our current world? My view is editorial value add today is data and how you not only kind of the collection of data, but how you interpret the data. Use primarily A for user acquisition, but also to, because a lot of these games are live and persistent worlds, use the data to understand what, how users engage with the content how you monetize the content. And if you're good at that data, you can dial in some pretty, um, some pretty both compelling content, but also compelling economics to really make these games highly profitable. So publishing today, I sort of think of as, you know, who's got the data, who's got the analytics that sits on top of the data. And I think a lot of developers are looking at it and sort of say, well, it's much more powerful to self-publish than to rely on a third-party publisher. Because when you rely on a third-party publisher, you lose something in the connection, the transaction, right? I think the idea of having a game being persistent and not having, in the old world, right, you kind of, you, you launch a game at Christmas and that would be the end, you ship and go. Then it was DLC and there were patches and so you can do it on the fly. But now these worlds are kind of upgraded all the time and, and are, there were live ops associated with these games. And, you know, to have a to have an organization sit between a publisher and a developer in a live op environment, a live ops environment, kind of puts friction between the guys and gals that are making mm. the game and the guys and gal and 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 the consumer. Yeah. And so I'm actually a fan of um, tight integration between the guy, the the people that do the marketing, the people that people that make the game, and the people that sell the game, basically. And just just double clicking on that point because I think it's a very interesting one that um, I think a lot of people in the games industry are trying to figure out right now. What do you think a next generation publisher looks like? So if you had to re if you had to rebuild the games publisher for today and say so there's no there's no baggage from you know retail distribution or you know legacy legacy business models, do you have any thoughts on how you would go about doing it? What what does take two 2.0 look like in other words? Well, I don't know that it's take two 2.0. It might be. I think there and there's no one answer. There are lots of answers and people are trying to sort it out. The need for capital is still there. We're in a very hot market at the moment, so I don't think capital is a scarce resource, but it may one day be again, and there will be a role for publishers. I think publishers that don't collect data in a, a robust way and in a way that can tie data back to development um, are kind of at a leg down. And so that the data analytics is important. The live ops are critically important as part of that. Um, and there are, and I still think there's the, there's the kind of publisher that looks like the traditional publishers, which is basically it's a collection of titles. Um, and, you know, the whole business can be broken down into its titles and how they perform. Um, and, you know, and that's kind of one end of the spectrum. But the other end of the spectrum is much tighter integration. I'm thinking, for example, of what, um, you know, Epic and, uh, and Fortnite did with um, Rocket League which is kind of much tighter integration in the cross-promotion, not only cross-promotion from a marketing perspective, but also integration inside the game. Um, and those can be very, very powerful. And um, I think even more powerful on the mobile side, for example, we haven't seen the impact of IDFA yet, but the notion that, you know, um, 
a publisher, a publisher needs kind of a large network in the IDFA world where they can set up their own identifiers and not rely on, you know, the Apple quote unquote publisher to provide the identifier, I think will um, not only kind of empower the larger publishers, but will kind of define what scale means in publishing, mobile publishing. And there may be a similar concept arising in console and PC, but you can see it in mobile for sure that, you know, one thing that often makes publishers powerful is scale and the understanding of what scale means. And so, um, you know, IDFA is one example of where scale works. Another example could be, you know, Microsoft's Game Pass kind of works when you have a lot of scale. It does not, it does not work at subscale. What you're saying is is especially relevant today on the heels of uh, Zynga acquiring an ad network. Right. I mean, not a, there, well, there's Zynga acquiring an ad network. And I think, um, uh, I think AppLovin really kind of uh, set the standard there. But the, 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 the kind of the, I mean, you know, AppLovin, I don't, I think for the longest time they may have changed, right? They don't, I mean, they probably don't give a crap about, uh, production value they just literally just follow the data and whatever works works and you know in a way yep. they have it in a way they have inside information right they see it before anybody else sees it and they go get it you know whatever's working so yep. I, th I think there's a mm -hmm. lot of inside information you get by having an app network attached to that kind of mm -hmm. um, that kind of operation and you sort of see it you know this whole concept of data being critical to editorial value add i think is you mm -hmm. know much more much more evident on the mobile side than it is in the yep. Definitely. I, I also want to play devil's advocate there for one second and um, sort of uh, maybe um, channel, I think, what a traditional publisher would say that a, that a data argument, which is that a large part of the value add of a publisher is actually that of a tastemaker, right? Like you've seen thousands of games, you know, get pitched over the years. You have your finger in the pulse of what consumers are buying because you're seeing all the, you know, you're seeing what, what sells and what doesn't. And so um, a lot of what you're doing is you're actually working with the studios that you're that you're publishing and you're telling them, you know, what what's going to work and what's not going to work. Right. It's like, hey, like, you know, Rockstar, you need to do X, Y, Z or ABC if you're next game and, and so on. And so I'm uh, curious from your perspective as, as someone who's actually been been in the shoes of managing some of the you know, most iconic studios in the industry. I, I think Rockstar is a great example of that. But, you know, there's there's, you know, Bioshock with and civilization and you know nba 2k like these, these are all very iconic franchises that have very strong creative teams um you know your view on sort of the publishers sort of managing the creative process and how much value add you know you provide as a publisher in that process yeah well, look i think i think there's room for both models in the industry right there's kind of the data driven uh, model which is kind of all at the end of the day, an iterative model, right? Try, you know, a, a lot of A-B testing, a lot of try-fail, try-fail, try-fail until you get it right. Um, and then there's the much higher kind of production value view of it, um, which is kind of the way some of the larger publishers work. And so the truly creative uh, high-end publishers will say, for example, you know, the customer doesn't know what they want because I haven't delivered it to them yet. They don't know how awesome it's gonna be. They don't know how cool it's gonna be. And, you know, there's no data in the world that's going to tell me kind of what game to make. I know what kind of game to make because I, I feel it in my bones. And I believe me, I have a ton of respect for that. Um, but I think of that less as the publisher and more as the developer that does that, right? I don't think if you've got truly creative people, and I believe this in my bones, right? If you have truly creative people, the worst thing a publisher can do is tell them what to make. And um, 
uh, and it almost always fails. Command and control as a management uh, as a management uh, method almost always fails in creative businesses. And if you have truly created, it's it's fine if you're doing kind of a data driven business and all you're trying to do is kind of is is acquire users at the cheapest possible price and monetize them at the highest possible price, which is the way a lot of mobile developers often operate. And they try and iterate, try and iterate, use the data. That's one thing until they get it right as opposed to somebody that's developing truly iconic IP, truly high production value. Um, there's room, there's for sure there's room for those. Those are, tend to be really, um, and those are great franchises when, when they work, mm-hmm. um, but they don't do it because they're listening to consumers. Like almost every business starts with a consumer and kind of works their way backwards. And okay, let's get, let's get the consumer what they want. The truly creative businesses go the other way, right? They sort of say, let's try a truly creative process develop an awesome product and if we do it it'll you know there's a really great chance it'll connect with the users nobody really knows what connects at the end of the day you can do all the testing you want and you know you don't if you're if you're in kind of a the mode of a you know of some great ip picket um you're not you're not going to know what connects with the users until it's actually in front of them so i do think i i take your point my only my only quarrel with it john would be kind of i replace the publisher with the developer because the developer can be the tastemaker for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And the best thing I think a publisher can do is get out of its way. Now, Activision and Take-Two have very, very different philosophies, for example, on that, right? I think Activision gives a lot, has a lot, operates with a lot more control. And, um, you know, when I was a Take-Two, it was just, you know, let them do their magic, get out of the way. It's not to say there's no green light process, it's not to say there's no control, um, but, um, you know, because no control is a problem also, but you really mm-hmm. need to respect the talent that you have and give them a lot of room. It's kind of the way I, 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 told, I told, you know, believe this in my bones, give them a lot of room to create great products and it will serve everybody well. Mm-hmm. How do you... I'm on Ben's side with this, John. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 um, my, my last question at this point is just, um, how do you ensure that your studios ship on time? Because I feel like that's always one of the, you know, that um, it's, it's, a, it's always a delicate balance between we're going to keep iterating in this game until it gets to perfection. And some of the most creative people I know, you know, tend, tend to be perfectionists and, and rightly so, right? Like they're creating worlds, yeah. they're creating IPs. How do right. you balance that with being, you know, the CEO of a public company that has to meet quarterly, quarterly earnings targets and you need to ship titles, you know, by Christmas, for example? Um, part of it is, look, I mean, uh, you know, the thing goes, slip happens and, um, you definitely don't want to serve any wine before it's time. Uh, so part of the role of the CEO, honestly, is to educate the street, um, because, um, titles will slip and, you know, the, the educated investor will say, well, okay, flips a quarter, two quarters, um, you know, you just move the earnings out a little bit. It's not the end of the world. Um, and I've given advice to other CEOs of, of video game publishers who, you know, think they're running Berkshire Hathaway, but in reality running a video game business. And you have to, I think there's a level of acceptance of the business that you're in. And it's a creative business. And I think there's a level of acceptance that, that investors sometimes have to accept that, you know, the title slips a quarter, it's going to slip a quarter. And the worst thing you want to do is slip a ga- is ship a game on time that's not ready. I mean, that would be the worst answer. Now, I do think that there's 
I think this is in in a way a little bit of an historical conversation in the sense that you know as games become less reliant on you know um, the weekend and the weeks following the release date and more mm-hmm. persistent and in the you know living open online open worlds persistent worlds metaverses whatever you call it um, those are really driving the economics of video game companies because what has changed fundamentally is you used to you used to launch a game and it would do whatever it did in the opening week and then there would be a pretty predictable decay curve as you kind of saw people play the game be done with the game the excitement wanes and then there's a tail and kind of you can you can you know pencil out a few years of cash flow just kind of by knowing how it did and and the genre and all of that stuff and that decay curve was a pretty common curve you'd look at and now all of a sudden persistent worlds come along and it's not only that you shifted the decay curve it doesn't look like a decay curve anymore it doesn't there's no curve it just keeps going and it goes and it goes and it can go for decades mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, to me that is like the most exciting part as as an operator as an investor in this world that's one of the most exciting things about what's going on right and i think mm-hmm. the investing world is catching on to this which is what all the excitement's about that it's looking a little bit it's like looking less like the movie business and more like a saas business and that's a pretty exciting that's kind of pretty exciting thing to think about and fundamentally cha- fundamentally changes the uh, the way you know the the nature of the business for me you know i can put on my investor hat and talk in those terms but i also think about the creator hat because i've been working in creative businesses my entire career and i love the creative process as frustrating as it can be sometimes and i love working with creative people um and so there's an element of um you know balance between you know when you have an when you have a world out there kind of delivering you know off the chart experiences from a creative point of view but also understanding that you're kind of you know you're trying to engage and you're trying to monetize and trying to get the you're trying to get the feedback into your live ops so that's, that's kind of where those two worlds that we were talking about meet once it's kind of out there in the wild and so that's kind of to me that's a very very exciting that's the most exciting aspect of being in the video game business mm-hmm. it, it is pretty incredible the fact that um, you know people are still playing the same game for, for 10 and 15 years at the time you know and some of these mm-hmm. games are charting that all-time player records, right? Like League of Legends, World of Warcraft, like they, they've all recently broken records as a player count, and these are these I had, old I games. Had, I, had somebody, I had somebody tell me that the most, not only that, but like, I mean, the, the way they live their lives in the, the, the second, these worlds, these virtual worlds, I literally had somebody tell me that his, that his most impactful emotional experience in his life was while playing EVE Online. That's like, mm. Wow. You know, that's pretty extraordinary. And I remember early days in the video game business, the test, the litmus test about whether video games can overtake movies because they always felt like, the video game business always felt like the poor cousin of the, of the, of the movie business. And the litmus test was, can you, make, can you make a gamer cry? Can you have a really emotional experience? And I think we've long, you know, not every game can make a user cry, note, nor is it the goal of every game. But there, I've had very mm-hmm. emotional experiences in a video game. And, and sure. you know, that's super powerful. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think this is actually uh, it's a good transition to our next topic that I, I did want to cover, which is, um, you know, since the time that you uh, 
that, that you were take to you've moved on and you joined Tencent and um, have, have done a lot of great work for them. Um, what are some of the lessons that you've learned, you know, from your from your take two days that you found, you know, applicable to, um, to what Tencent is doing now, and and maybe maybe as part of that, speak speak a bit broadly to sort of just Tencent's investment philosophy in the West, of which I understand you know you, you do a lot with, and and so on and so forth. Look, in many ways, I think you know the lessons from take two. I don't, I don't have to carry over to Tencent because Tencent has them anyway, which is, you know, be highly supportive of the creative environment and give them plenty of, you know, give creatives plenty of room to work their magic. And, you know, that cut, kind of cuts across both um, organizations. You know, in mm-hmm. terms of Tencent's investment philosophy broadly, you know, there, in some ways, you know, one of the things that's really impressive about leadership at Tencent is the intellectual dexterity of leadership. And there's often no one strategy that suits all situations. Um, and, you know, the flexibility and the adaptability, I think, has been really impressive um, for an organization that big. And so, um, uh, so every situation is similar. But we think, you know, we've, we, you know, we're highly supportive of, the creative community, highly supportive of our portfolio companies. I think, um, you know, we have some portfolio companies on the line and I think they probably corroborate that, you know, we tend to be super uh, supportive um, and uh, really try not to get into anybody's shorts. Um, and, you know, and we don't try to ram down like people see Tencent as, you know, a value-add investor as they should, but it's not... We don't, on the one hand, we won't tell people how to make their games. On the other hand, you know, if they need help, um, we have enormous resources that we can bring to bear to help them and understand kind of what they're trying to build just because we have so much, because we have so much data, because we have so much experience. And there's no, um, there's no company that has made more games, seen more games, played more games, you know, um, and operate more games than Tencent. And that creates an enormous uh, power, enormous intelligence, and business intelligence that we can bring to our investment community. Um, and, um, you know, as investors, you know, we talked, I talked about giving creatives a lot of freedom, but as investors, you know, for the longest time, we take minority investments and we're relatively, we're supportive and we're passive. And, you know, we, there's a sense that the most important thing is to um, speed and make sure that you know, we are the the investor of choice um, because we're supportive, because we can move quickly, and because we uh, support the creative process. And you know, taking the time to calculate the IRR to the third decimal point um, at the risk of missing an opportunity is not necessarily something that we would do. We kind of we're you know, you know, I think I think this market moves very very quickly, and we need to you know, as big as we are, we need to move as quickly as the market. Yeah, I mean, I think that the big thing with how quickly the market, like the game industry at large moves is, is the, uh, the, you know, the, the kind of like steadying hand of, of overall scale of, of Tencent is, is nice for sure. But I think the other piece, and I don't know if you can speak too much to this, but I think the other thing that's, it's also really nice and not all that common in the games business is just having a very long-term view, right? Like, and that, that to me has always been something that's been valuable on Tencent side where it's like, you know, not, there's no rush, right? It's like, you know, take taking a long-term stance on, hey, 
you're planting seeds and, you know, it turns out that it can take five, eight, 10, 15 years to make a great game, right? When you look at, you look at some of the games that Tencent's invested in or some of the companies, right? Like it's taken a, a really, really long time. You know, I think like the Path of Exile, right? Was what, eight years or something like that before they really got that thing going, so. Yeah. No, and, and you know, we were, uh, was true. And we've been, we've been in lots of companies look at, you know, our biggest portfolio companies in the US, which Epic and Riot. We've been in there for a very, very long time and very supportive all the way through, even good times and in bad. People kind of always look at the hits and forget, think it was an overnight success, but every overnight success is 10 years in the making. And right. we are, um, you know, and, and we've right. been there and we offer, and we have lots and lots of resources to our companies. Mm hmm. And but I actually want to probe on that point because I, I actually feel like it's something that, as, as Seth pointed out, like Tencent does extremely well, which is have, which is be patient and then give creative teams, you know, not only a second chance but sometimes a third and a fourth and a fifth. Um, in, in your view, like, how how does what is the right way to sort of determine whether you know a, a creative team should keep going, right? Because you know, let's just take Epic Foods for an example, right? Like they. They went through multiple sort of false starts, even with Fortnite, before that thing really hit and blew up into the sensation that it was. And, and they had Paragon before Fortnite, which was, you know, critically panned and, and not not really much of a commercial success. And then right. they they had a string of sort of um, you know misses on mobile as well before that. Um, but what was the thing, you know, and, and not not to use Epic as an example, maybe just speaking generally, um, that Tencent considers or, or that you consider when it comes to figuring out like okay. This this team has still got it. Let's give them let's give them another twenty million bucks and, and have them have them go at it again. And we'll just have confidence that they'll, they'll get to it eventually. Like how do you how do you make that call? I don't know. I think it's kind of this intangible thing called judgment um, that you get from experience. <laughs> and you know, it's just one of these chicken and egg things. You can't get judgment unless you have a lot of experience, and can't get experience unless you have a lot of judgment. So um, I. Um, you know, in some ways, you know it when you see it. I think it's important. Um, one of the expressions we used, when it was more like the hit-based business, was a little bit different, you know, and I think it was important back then. I mean, it was a take-two. I'd use this expression often, bury your dead early. And, you know, um, you know, throwing good money after bad is not going to change the situation, and you need to, um, you know, you need to cut it off. And, uh and I think the best video game publishers do that, and they're heartless about it, um, and they need to be heartless about it. Um, as much as you, as much as you love your children, you have to kill some of them every now and then. Um, that said, um, you know, if a product fails, it doesn't mean the team fails. Um, and I happen to believe that, you know, truly great teams really don't prove themselves overnight. They prove themselves over uh, years and decades. And if you see the team coming together um, and you see bed strength and you sort of see real talent, um, it's good to look, I think, it's good to look beyond kind of the success of a single game and look at what's being built as infrastructure. And, inf and by infrastructure, I just mean kind of a team that operates well together. Um, and that, you know, it's not just whether the game failed, but how it failed and why it failed. Um, and then you can make a judgment on all of that. Um, you know, Tencent's in this, often in this position where we are, you know, we tend to be minority investors. And so, you know, it's much easier to say, well, look, if you, if the company can raise capital, we'll support it. Um, and, you know, it's not often when we would go into, go, you know, just sort of, 
um, you know, be the uh, um, the white knight that's trying to save save a situation, right? We leave it up to management to guide us into how they want to proceed. And if they believe that they really got something powerful, you know, for sure, we're, we would, we are, our default is to be supportive. And if it's, um, if for some reason there is no path forward, then there's no path forward. But the default is to be supportive. Makes sense. It's, I, uh, I, I, I don't know if I answered your question, but I hope I did. It's, it's a tough question to answer, but I, I think um, the, the framework that you use for, um, you know, ultimately, like it, it comes, it comes to using judgment and, and figuring out when teams still have it in them. <clears throat> um, I, I think it's a, it's a good one, and ultimately, um, you know, there's probably going to be some some mistakes that are made along the way, and like, you know, part of having judgment is knowing when the team, you know, should should move on to, to do something else, and you know, end the game that that doesn't quite have the metrics and you can knock your head against a brick wall for for a very long time, but it's time to just start a new new IP and a new project. And uh, I'm pretty I, I think sure are, I, haven't, really I, have, I haven't I haven't done the research, but I I feel pretty confident in the statement that I'm about to make, which is that pick your hot studio, the one you think is kind of never failed, and I guarantee you they've had multiple failures. And mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they, you know, every, even the best studios have laid eggs every now and then and they move on. So I, I, uh, I have kind of like a, maybe a fun question branching off of that that I was curious about during whether it was your time at take two or kind of like any time in, in sort of looking at the industry, has there been a game project where you were like, absolutely not. There's no way this thing's actually going to work. And then it actually does. Uh, has there been like a moment where you, you swore up and down that it was impossible for this thing to actually work. And then it, and then it ended up being, you know, a big success. <laughs> I love that question. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I, I feel qualified, honestly. I mean, just, just to be, perfectly blunt about it. I'm not the be all and end all about what will work and what won't work. And I recognize my limitations. I think I'm pretty good at telling good from bad. I'm not great at telling good from great. And um, because you don't know great until either it connects with consumers um, because there's an element of risk in all of that, or, um, you know, you're relying on a bit of a franchise and a bit of a history, which kind of de-risks the situation. I think you kind of have to look at the risk overall because um, there, there are elements of the game that will, you know, will de-risk the situation. So, for example, you know, if you kind of, you know, it would be pretty bold for me to sort of tell somebody, tell, you know, a, a studio that has a hit franchise and is on the fourth iteration of the franchise, and they would come in and sort of, and I'd sort of say, you know, it's never going to work because, I mean, there'd be no credibility behind that. I have been in situations where... Um, you know, it's late and it's off budget and I'm like, I'm not seeing it happen. And somebody's eyes off the ball and they're not focused and that kind of thing. And that's, you know, I can call that out pretty quickly. Um, but I think especially now we live in a world that is, that is a little bit more forgiving for the initial game because you can continue to work the game even after it's launched. It's harder, it's harder to dig yourself out of a hole um, but I know studios, and I'm close to some studios, that will just kind of iterate, 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 iterate until they get it right. And you can do that. You can do that in front of consumers. So um, I think the worst I've gotten is, you know, a game is, you know, 
game slips, a game's not coming together, it shows up a green light and there's no progress being made in the game, or it shows up a green light and it's just like, what is this? You guys have lost your way. What's the hook? What's the, you know, what's the differentiation? How, and, and if there are no good answers to that, I get worried. If there are reasonable answers to that, I get worried. And I do find that many times, especially in kind of the high production value games, that the whole thing starts coming together very, towards the end. And it all, it can look, you know, until you get to the polish phase, AAA games can look pretty crappy. And, um, and I think some of the best creative minds, not only in video games, but in other creative areas, you know, early stages of a creative product can look pretty crappy. And it would be wrong to make a judgment based on that. And so you rely on a number of things, not only, you know, what you're seeing in front of you or hearing or playing in front of you, but also, you know, the history, the reputation, the franchise. There's a lot of elements that go into it. Um, but have, have I been worried? Yes, but mostly been worried about um, on time, on budget, and less about whether the game will actually succeed or not. And when it doesn't, and in my, just, it, you know, because Take Two and elsewhere, I kind of try to operate in a culture of absolute honesty. I would hope that a developer would sort of say, come to me and sort of say, you know, it's just not happening, you know, and we're going to kill it because we couldn't figure it out. And and I've been in those situations too. I really like how you you go down you go down a path and you feel like you go down a few creative paths and just like it's you know we're 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 just not feeling it. It's not happening. Moving on. Yeah, I like when you had pointed out too about you know it's it's hard to tell the difference between like a good and a great game and from a done a lot of curation work and it's like it's really easy to tell when a game is really bad and it's really easy to tell when a game is really great but most things are in the middle and like you're saying for triple a games especially like or even a lot of games they stay in the middle for a really long time (laughs) and it could go you know that it goes into like this is not going to work um side of things and but it could go into like this is really amazing and you teeter on that point for so long and that's like to me it's like the key i guess maybe where the kind of judgment or like having these answers and and all that stuff like that's kind of where the fuzzy i guess kind of like magic portion of it is like is this which side is this skewing to yeah i and i find kind of the polish really really matters um and it really makes a big difference and i like teams that spend time on polish i think it's kind of oh go for it seth I was going to say, like, that's that's one of the things that I wish that, like, the industry was more open about, about, like, no, most games suck for almost all of development. Like, and <laughs> they are they are such complicated products, like, especially when you're dealing with, like, mm-hmm. multiplayer live service games. Like, they're terrible. They're not fun. They barely work. And because of the way production is usually done, there's a lot of things parallelized. And so it ends up being there you know it, it, until the very end you most people like don't even know what the game's gonna be yet like you, you can't even see it all and and even i think the be- some of the best creative you know visionaries and stuff out there like they can't even keep it all in their heads because these games are so big that it's that it's really difficult to do that like could you imagine you know that do, do you think like the creative lead for for red dead redemption 2 like can keep it all in their head like that game is so big like you have to you have to see it you know at the very you know when it gets much much closer and that's one of the things that is that's why I think patience is so important for, for those games, because you just, you need to obviously to a point, right. There's, there's sort of, there's a, there's every single game I've ever worked on. There's a time where you're wandering in the wilderness and 
you have to decide how long you're going to be willing to do that before you're like, nope, there's a reason why no one has done this thing that we decided to do and you have to kill it. But for the most part, like without the wandering, I feel like you don't end up with something unique. So you, you sort of, it's a double-edged sword. Red, or red the, dead or the other way to say it. Oh, sorry, go for it, Ben. Sorry. I was going to say the other way to say it is like, you know, I have, you know, going into the industry as, uh, as, as somebody fairly naive to development um, when I started, um, you know, you kind of want it to be kind of Berkshire Hathaway and you want it, you want the creative process to sort of say, okay, spec it out and, you know, uh, put together your milestones and your checkpoints and build it out and that kind of, and you agree to a budget and off you go without a lot of appreciation for how much needs to get thrown out in order to keep the stuff that ends up staying in the game. And that too is part of the creativity. And as you can, there's, you know, cause you, you, you're not gonna, it's very, very rare, I think, for a creative product to be conceived of at the beginning and be executed on exactly as it was conceived um, and come out with an awesome product at the end of it. There is um, by nature kind of a lot of trial and error, a lot of like, I don't like it, I like it, I, you know, maybe, maybe not. And, you know, there's a lot of things that end up being cut out and need to be cut out. What's so fascinating now, though, is it's even like you could have a great game, but it's only a good game because the audience hasn't hasn't found it yet. Like there's phenomena like Rainbow Six Siege or Among Us where the games were out there and then, you know, it took time for the audience to find it. And once the audience found it, then everyone realized it was great. Uh, Like the audience turns it into a hit itself rather than happening the other direction which is totally new now but do you think do you think that's that's really sui generis or do you think that there's a publisher behind that kind of really working it or does it happen you know spontaneously yeah i think on the on you know definitely on the on the the siege side it's it's the developer and the publisher sticking with it and not giving up until they find the audience or until the influencers found it and were like yo this game is great they realize that it, it it's it wasn't working and they stuck to it and now it's working but on the on the among us side it was almost like a like a complete you know yeah. like lightning in a bottle kind of like yeah. all of a sudden tim the Tatman or no that was i mean that was even another game that was that was uh fall guys you know it's just yeah. like just kind of happens now and that and that does happen right i mean things just catch on fire like that but you can't but you know you can't count on it as a as a business plan <laughs> definitely not no And curious from your perspective, maybe taking it on, take, take, zooming up a bit to, to, to think more about sort of um, you know what the what the industry could look like in, in the future. Um, you know, you've seen multiple platform shifts over the course of your uh, you know your career, right? There are multiple console generations, like the rise of mobile, um, cloud gaming. You know, more recently, what what in your opinion? Um, you know, are, are likely candidates for the next big gaming platform, so to speak, and then and what might that be? Um, that's a great question. I, you know, for as long as I've been in the business, every console has been the last console, right? This is the last console cycle, and it's never, <laughs> and it's and it's never true. Um, the consoles, and it may, it may, I mean, people are saying this about this console cycle, and it may be true, right? Because consoles are looking more and more like PCs um, in terms of their architecture. And um, and the console cycle certainly lasts longer, and there are um, you know mid you know micro upgrades along a certain console cycle. So you know you can buy an upgraded 
you know, you'll be able to buy an upgraded PS5 before you buy the PS6 kind of thing. And, um, and I think that makes the consoles look more like mobile, where it's less of a step function um, and more of a kind of a smooth curve into added computing power, memory, and functionality. And so, um, so I think of the console cycles as being kind of less disruptive as they used to be, and also a lot more backward compatibility. Um, and console cycles, just you know, again, because I'm old enough to give history lessons, I think console cycles for the longest time were, were um, both terrible threats and opportunities for publishers. Threats because you know every media business relies on their back catalog or their library to provide a stable level of um, of revenue and cash flow. And every time, and and you know, and every time there would be a cons- a shift in technology, say in the music business, it would be a boon to the publisher because they get to resell all their music again. People can think back to kind of you know, records to CDs and, you know, and the way people collected music, they would just buy their music collection all over again so they can have it on a CD instead of a cassette. And the video game business had this opposite effect where every time there was a console cycle, the publishers, you couldn't, there was no backward compatibility. They have to take their library and basically throw it away. There's no more library. It destroys your library value. You have to create it from scratch. And the only thing that really transcends one console cycle to another is the franchise itself, right? The brand, the Grand Theft Auto was a brand, it was a franchise. Um, and, but you know, if you have a PS5, you're not gonna sell a PS3 game to a PS5 user. And so the console cycles end up being, um, you know, threats that way, but opportunities because every time, that, because of that, there's a market share reset among the publishers every time there's a console, console, console cycle shift. And it creates enormous opportunity if you guess right who's going to be the winner. And if you think back to kind of the early days of Nintendo and the Wii, you know, there were a lot of publishers, including Electronic Arts, that like got it famously wrong and lost a lot of market share because they got there too late. Um, And so console cycles are kind of really important this way. And this is just my way of background of why I think it's a really important question. Um, I don't... um, you know, I don't have any special knowledge in this area. Um, I'm actually a believer in um, in Oculus, and I think Facebook's not going to give up on it. And I think that um, it will become a bona fide mm-hmm. uh, platform for entertainment and also for other platforms. So AR, VR, I think is real. I think cloud computing for certain kinds of games and applications, I think, is super powerful. Um, there's always going to be some sort of limit on, you know, Twitch games where microseconds count. There'll always be some sort of limit about what you can do in a network, I think. Although my understanding about the back end of Stadia, for example, was that it was actually pretty pretty good in that area. But there'll always be some sort of limit because of just the limit of the speed of light. And so, um, but I do think that... Uh, cloud gaming, cloud computing, especially on mobile with 5G and ultimately 6G, is going to create new kinds of um, opportunities, new kinds of gameplay um, for publishers and developers. So, I mean, all of this is, you know, stronger computing power, more bandwidth on the network, um, creates new sorts of opportunities. Fortnite took advantage of, um, you know, 100 players at a time in a battle royale mode. But what if you had thousands of players at a time? What if you had millions of players at a time? Can you get there? And I think there are limits to what you can do in terms of size. 
but I do think that, um, you know, the shift to cloud computing and the shift to the avail the ability to have more and more um, objects within an environment that can be controlled, I think, is uh, is pretty powerful. So. Um, it's not a great answer to your question. Like, I'm not calling the next platform as Oculus, but I think it's super interesting. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I think this, you know, what's going on with metaverses, I think, is super interesting because there's kind of there's hardware cons, there's hardware platforms, and they're also kind of you know software platforms and ecosystems and things like Roblox that I think are super. You know, I think I think they're in many ways a platform um, that's all software driven. I think it's super interesting. There's a lot there. And for sure, and for sure, innovation is continuing in this area. I'm curious how you feel about um, how, you know, how I think like how players are starting to digest and actually play games through some of the things like subscription services or in a lot of ways, <clears throat> you know, I think it's somewhat parallel to Roblox or even Fortnite, what Fortnite's trying to offer, right? Where it's like, hey, come here and have a whole variety of experiences <clears throat> that you can, you can do and that's you get on game pass right you pay you pay a limited amount but there's like a you know a whole bunch of games you can play on there and i'm, I'm curious how you think like that wh where do you think that's going to end up going are we going to end up with you know most most games being delivered through subscription models like what is your what are your thoughts there um i think well first of all i think game pass has done a pretty extraordinary job right i mean the numbers that they're posting are pretty impressive um and the I think they're very different opportunities. So, you know, subscription, the idea of kind of the Netflix for games, um, I think Microsoft is doing a great job with. I think the large publishers will fight tooth and nail against putting their best titles or their first launches into a system like that, right? Because it really eats into their economics. And so, and they've all learned the Netflix lesson and the, the studio lesson through Netflix about empowering, you know, a subscription business and ultimately, ultimately being intermediated by the subscription business. So, you know, I think, you know, it's going to be a hard, long fight on the subscription side on the one hand. On the other hand, consumers seem to be taking it up. I think Microsoft's latest numbers were pretty impressive. Um, and so um, I think that's a real opportunity. And in terms of just experiences and, mon and ways of monetizing, I think we're going to continue to innovate. I don't think we've seen the end of it. I think one of the most interesting things I think I've seen in Roblox and Fortnite is this idea that, you know, video games used to be considered this segment in the media business initially at the fringe and ultimately, I think, today mainstream. But now what's emerging is that other areas, other consumer areas are not sitting side by side with the game business, but are being subsumed within the game business, which is to say you're seeing music being marketed within Fortnite and or not marketed, but, you know, concerts within Fortnite and, and therefore promotion. But, um, you know, and in Roblox, you know, actual businesses showing up kind of trying to establish artists within um, a video game. And you're seeing that in music, you're seeing it in fashion, you're seeing it in sports, you're seeing it in video, in, sh in short and long form video. And this idea of the metaverse where you can, you can consume all of your media within this world is pretty damn powerful. And once you do that, um, I think the sky's the limit on the one hand, and on the other hand, I think the opportunities for monetization are, are, are multifaceted. And so I think subscription is, you know, one part of what's happening, but the game industry at this point is 
so much more varied than the long form video business in the way that, you know, Netflix and the studios um, were kind of living in kind of one circumscribed world and that was the only world. I think there are lots of different worlds in which, you know, video games thrive. So subscriptions is one of them and different monetization models within, um, you know, metaverses is, is another model. And I'm sure there's more that I can't think about at the moment, but um, without question, um, innovation will march on and um, different, mo different models will emerge. And it's, again, one of the reasons I'm so excited about being in the industry. That's good. Go ahead, Kelly. Uh, I was going to comment, actually, listening to you talk about that stuff makes me also excited about it. I mean, I'm excited about the industry, but um, I've, I have a lot of fascination on like what is the kind of metaverse stuff look like and all that. Um, I don't know if actually if I can kind of get into my, maybe this is a, a good like towards the end question, but um, Ben, I was, I was looking up some stuff about you before we were getting on this call and I uh -oh. like stumbled across your, the book you wrote. Um, and so John and Seth, I think have both read it. I haven't read it, um, but I, I would just, as someone who traveled a lot and did a lot of like, I'm going to kind of drop out of the world for a little while and see if I can figure every, like my life out, you know, I'm like super curious to just kind of hear a little bit about maybe the book or your experience or like, you know, a lesson or two from it or something. It just like was not what I was expecting when I was, when I was looking you up. <laughs> That's funny. Cause that question was not uh, what I was expecting by getting on this call. Um, <laughs> uh, I, wrote, I wrote the book a long time ago, but, um, uh, for those of you who don't know, I kind of, when I left Take-Two, I took a sabbatical and went to live in Bali for the better part of a year. Um, and look, at the right time of life and uh, in the right circumstances, I think take some time off to recharge your batteries if you, if that's kind of, you know, what's calling you, um, I think is a fantastic thing to do. There was, when I was planning it, there was a TED Talk, I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting who, who did it. It was a guy who had a designer, his, his name is escaping me, Australian-American guy, sorry, Austrian-American guy. And um, he would fold his studio down, his design studio down every seven years and like take a year long sabbatical to recharge his batteries and then come back. And we literally did it every seven years, like the name applies. And, um, uh, and I mean, I've taken one in my entire career, but uh, it was life changing for me and my family. The book is actually a very personal account. It's not a business book. Um, there's a little bit of business sprinkled into it. Um, but it's just kind of a little bit of, you know, inside uh, my head about, you know, life and careers and kind of um, where work fits into all of that. And um, it was well received. I'm told it's a quick read. Um, I welcome anybody who wants to read it to read it. And if you want to talk to me about it, I'm, happy, I'm open to a conversation about it. Um, but it's kind of, you know, it's a, uh, it follows the story arc, it, you know, follows kind of, it start. It really starts to take two, but I mean, take two is over in chapter one, and then kind of moves on from there. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe some of it feels like kind of appropriate to the times. Like, you know, a lot of people have been reevaluating what do they think about work, what is work to me. You know, like how do we how do we even integrate back into that, especially you know after the last year and and having the opportunity. And there's so many people that I know that are switching jobs or changing careers or really reevaluating like what's important to them in their life. So I just thought it was a kind of interesting, an interesting thing to come up and something that um, I think is actually maybe even though you wrote it a long time ago is like, is oddly relevant right now. Um, and there's, I think there's another component to it too, of like, 
not really talked about so much in a kind of business sense or in a creative sense of like how I'm, how taking a break, I think is actually part of the process or having the time to just stop and think, um, or reflect back on what you worked on and like how much of modern work culture is just like the go, 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 go. Um, but I actually think it's incredibly valuable to stop every once in a while because it gives you an opportunity to really like think about what you're doing and to like let the creative process take a break, um, and become a little bit more, more subconscious, I guess. I, I agree with that. I would only, I would only add kind of a little bit of humility around the notion that, you know, not everybody can afford to take a break. Um, yeah, exactly. And there's a lot that's in the book about, you know, how can you take a break in your mind without necessarily having to take a break physically? And I think anybody, everybody can afford that. So, um, you know, a lot of it is just kind of a shift in mindset as opposed to literally removing yourself from your situation. I happen to be, I happen to think, you know, the world's going to snap back pretty darn quickly um, in terms of how people work and it'll go back pretty quickly to the way it was. I hope I'm wrong, but I, I, I do think that. You know, <laughs> I've been joking that I'm not ready to get back under the crushing wheel of capitalism quite yet, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit curious because I think like um, in the, you know, obviously I think Kelly's totally right. I mean, like one of the, one of the big things that I think is interesting about kind of the end of the, the end of the story in your book is about the re-entry, right? It's about like, Hey, like, how do you, you were in a, you know, you were a CEO of a public company, right. And then, um, moving into like, like coming back, kind of re-entering, um, I'm curious, like, was there, was there one, any, any advice you would give to people as people kind of like re-enter, I think what they're going to, but number two, like, was there something that really surprised you about what, you know, what you, what, what the kind of like time off sort of perspective shift gave you that maybe still sticks with you now? Because I think, you know, like you, you joined Tencent right around when I met you. So it must've been like fall of 2016 or something. Right. So it's been, mm -hmm. it's been five years now or so. Right. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's been, it's been a while. I think it's been four years. Did I lose you? No, I'm still here. Sorry. No, okay. I was just, I, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the look, I mean, one of the, um, one of the reasons I wrote the book is somebody said to me, like the ones that, the one that, that those that re-enter best are the ones that have an ability to tell their, their own story. And so I sort of felt like it was time to tell my story. But um, uh, I think, you know, I got a little bit of perspective and a little bit of, um, it's a bit of a matrix move, right? It's kind of like uh, I took the red pill or the green pill, I forget which one is which. Um, but, uh, you know, I took, I just took some time to, uh, understand kind of, um, my own inner working and it was kind of a very reflective time for me. And so I find that I have these matrix moves every now and then where it used to be the case where, you know, you'd get a call or a text or an email that just, just destroy your whole day. Um, and you know, back then I kind of react to it pretty quickly and I've learned to respond as opposed to react. I think it's kind of a very subtle difference. Um, but I feel a lot more in control of my situation on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that um, in many ways and non-traditional ways, I'm accomplishing more than I accomplished before. And I think getting, taking the time to kind of really ground yourself and understand who you are, what makes you tick, what's important to you, I think those are all super valuable things. And, um, you know, was it Aristotle or Socrates? I forget which sort of said, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. So, I, you know, I just was in a, a period of time where I wanted to examine things and I've made some, 
uh, choices. And just to cut to the chase, I still have, I have a daily meditation practice that I never had before. I had a almost daily yoga practice that I didn't have before. I'm much more involved in creative pursuits and I'm as engaged in business as I've ever been, but it feels much more uh, grounded and well-rounded and, um, and considered than just simply wanting to kind of crush the next deal. And um, so it's a much more holistic view that I have at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate hearing stuff like that because I think there's a lot of um, narrative around the success being the like I stayed up and worked, you know, 15, 20 hour days and did that, you know, basically that you're just crushing yourself over and over. And um, I'm I'm kind of on the side with you, you know, like I do a lot of meditation and journaling and taking time and space and that that's been a more recent thing. And like you're saying, it doesn't even have to be like, okay, I took a year off. Although a lot of people that normally wouldn't get time off did, in theory, get time off, you know, during COVID when, when everything was really shut down and furloughed. Um, but there's a lot of ways to do it in like a, a daily practice or, or in small ways. Um, and it's, it's nice to hear that or from, you know, someone who is considered very successful that like that continues to allow you to be successful and isn't like some sort of hindrance that if you just are not going, going, going 24 hours a day that you're behind somehow. That look done. The, I agree with that, and done the right way. Um, I think I, I firmly believe this. Done the right way, it makes you more successful. You're here. That was my that was my question. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking about that. By the way, for sure. That's awesome. I think just on on the topic of taking off our shoes and, and taking a break as well. I think we're uh, we're toward the end of our session here. Like we normally book an hour, and we went slightly over because I think everyone just had a great time chatting with you, Ben. Um, I really I like to end. Yeah, likewise. I, I like to end with um, one question that I that I ask all of the our guests, which is, um, what is the single best piece of advice that anyone's ever given you? <laughs> uh, I've picked up a lot of it over the years. Um, I'll tell you what I repeat to a lot of people who uh, come to me for advice early in their careers, and I repeat two pieces of advice I got from professors at business school um, separately when I went to them and sort of said, you know, I want to be, I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, one of them said, um, don't, don't do it now, right? Go make your mistakes off of somebody else's nickel um, and learn um, before you go off and do your own thing. Um, and I know that's really not a Silicon Valley thing to say, um, you know, where, you know, people are sometimes encouraged to leave their college careers and just start a company. Um, but I do think it's important to get mentored um, and to learn. And then the other piece of advice I got, which was, you know, the early years in your career are super important because they are habit-forming years. And the habits you form in your early years are likely to last you your entire career. And the best thing you can do is go learn good habits. And the best way to learn good habits is to go to a place with really high standards. And... Um, and I think that trumps the first, um, you know, piece of advice that I got because that, you know, I went to work for Rupert Murdoch right out of school um, and, you know, News Corp at the time certainly um, was a very aggressive, very lean and very smart organization. And I learned a ton and I think I picked up some really good habits and I'm really glad I did that as opposed to either going to a Wall Street sweatshop or going to um, a company that I have to work in the mailroom for, although I know famously in Hollywood, that's where you start everywhere. And, you know, like every major um, agent or executive seems to have started in the mailroom. I'm a believer in learning from the best. 
and I'm a believer in picking up good habits, and I continue to be a believer in uh, being curious about how to improve and how to um, and what I can learn from other people. But early in your career, form great habits and hopefully have a high standard and do whatever you can to maintain that standard throughout your career, whether that's on the creative side or the business side or whatever you do. That uh, to me, that's the most important thing. That's great advice. Those are great. It's awesome. Yeah. I got that same piece of advice, that first advice, and I took it, and I am super happy, like, every day that I followed that advice, so I'll second that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, John, I kind of feel like, a, you know, anybody on the call have any any um, pieces of advice that they thought was the greatest they got? I mean, I really I like... Think... Oh, go ahead, Seth. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess the... the um... I don't know. I feel this is a really difficult question. I mean, I think the biggest piece of advice and something that I always think a lot about is just the something that my dad used to say to me all the time, which is like, you know, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And I feel like that's an actually really important thing. Um, if I, I used to, uh, one of some of the people early on at proletariat gave me a t-shirt that just said fundamentals on it, because I used to say it all the time to the team that like, it's really important to have like good fundamentals and, and it's like little things and big things. Cause how you do the little things is how you do everything. Um, and I think that that's a really important like thing to consider and something that's always resonated with me. That's great. Yeah. The one that, the one that stuck with me was actually, I, I was at take two interactive uh, in, in 2001, 2002, so long ago. Um, my boss was this uh, gentleman, Jamie Lease, uh, who was running this, the, the publishing at the time. And, he he just said to me once he was like he's like andrew's like shut up he's like because you can't listen while you're talking (laughs) (laughs) and i was like wow that's true you really can't listen while you're talking (laughs) words of wisdom (laughs) that's great i like that that's really funny i i was gonna add uh, the steps point about um the little details matter. I think um, one of the things that have stuck with me was I think a, um, I think it might have been a TED talk by a, by a Navy SEAL a while back about the importance of making you a bed. Oh yeah. I think that the line oh, that, that stuck with me was if you want to change the world, you start off by making you a bed in the morning. Yeah. Um, because that you know it's all about the little details, right? Like you, you do one thing right, and that then gives you the discipline and the confidence that it takes to do another thing right. And then another thing, right? And then eventually, like you, you change the world. But it starts up by paying attention to the little details and just doing doing one thing right in the morning. So I thought that was incredibly insightful. Yeah, I know, I know, I know that to talk is a famous one. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, think I that the the thing there is is about to like something that's really I think more apparent to me now, having been through like games are an incredibly co- collaborative thing to make, right? And so teams are super important. I think that the idea that you focus on getting that one thing right is also like, I think the, the, uh, the idea of like going through the motions is the most like disadvantageous thing you can do and like disingenuous thing you can do for your teammates. And so, you know, making sure that you're not just, you know, uh, like spending, spending the time to actually put in your full effort, right. Is like what makes it right for the, for the rest of the team. And it's one of those things when, like when I think about that when I when I make the bed in the morning where it's just like, you know, do I leave that little corner flipped over or is it worth it to like actually finish it? Yeah, that's um this isn't the piece of advice I was thinking of, but somebody there's something like if it takes less than a minute to do it, you should just do it, you know, like while you're thinking of it. 
and I tell myself a lot, like with, especially with stuff around the house. Um, but I was going to say that the, the one piece of advice actually that I got that was really helpful was that, you know, like basically don't just quit everything. Like I switched from, um, the sciences. I worked as a chemist before I got in games and I was just going to like, I don't know, make a studio or something. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I got the advice about, you know, working somewhere else first and learning what I wanted to do. And on the side, I ended up starting up the mega booth, which became the company that I ran. Um, and so it was, it was great advice. Um, but there's also a, a quote that I've used across all of my jobs and careers and stuff is, um, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. And like, I love that. <laughs> I use it for events work, um, for everything, you know, like the idea that in, in theory, yeah, we're just going to sit down, scope out a game. We're going to make a game. The game's going to launch. It's going to be done. Like, that's great. And then in practice, like it never works that way. Nothing ever works the way that you're planning. I like that a lot. Awesome. Well, this has been great, John. This has been Thank you. Yeah, this has been a great session. You know, thank, yeah. thank you for joining us today, Ben, and for sharing all of your wisdom and all of your experiences over the years. It's it's been it's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed yeah, it. Thank it was you. Awesome. Thank you guys. Thank you. Yeah, this is really great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, well, Ben. Bye bye. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Bye right, bye everyone.